police officers have discretion to stop who they're going to stop and to uh, enforce the laws in, in, uh, in given areas or in given communities and not enforce them in given communities. And so mm-hmm. as a result, they're going to stop and frisk people in Harlem, but not necessarily on the east side, in the upper east side. Yeah. Uh. I lay on the scale, you got a glow, got a glow. I'd like to welcome everyone to another episode of the Let's Get Podcast. I'm your host Zeke, and in this episode, I have an attorney named Samir Bindan to talk about the justice system as a whole. I'll thank you for content running for any short language used in this episode, and hope you have a nice day and enjoy the show. Thank you for being the podcast. And the first question I'd like to ask is what would your origin story be? Um, my origin story would be that I am a, a black man in America, um, mm-hmm. doing my best to uh, struggle on behalf of uh, my people, mm-hmm. trying to help uh, those who I represent in the judicial system navigate their way through it in the best way possible uh, in light of the considerations that the system is not designed to help them. Mm-hmm. And would that be like a book or a show? Um, it will probably be a book. Um, mm-hmm. Hold on a second. Yeah, it will probably be a book. Um, I'm not much into film, so mm-hmm. plus film can be distorted. So I can yeah. leave imaginations to uh, with regards to certain things to what people think. Mm-hmm. Nice. Cool. So more about you. So you're a lawyer, right? Uh, yes, I'm an attorney. Correct. And what got you into law to start with? So I would say a few things. Um, mm-hmm. On the more selfish side, I always liked to debate and argue. And mm-hmm. I always like to reason and go back and forth with people. And that's why I joined the debate team when I was in college. Mm-hmm. Um and overall, I, I generally enjoy public speaking. I'm not going to say that I love it, but I do like it. I think it can be a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, on the more altruistic side, I always wanted to be in a position where I could help people navigate through the judicial system because I've come to know a lot of people who have had experiences in the judicial system, specifically when it came to public defenders where they did not have the greatest experience with regards to public defenders or with regards to the attorneys that represented them. What got me interested in public defense specifically, because I wanted to be a criminal defense attorney for the longest time. My inspiration mm-hmm. for that was uh, having heard of Johnny Cochran at a very young age. And back when I was young, I didn't know that there were so many areas of law. I just knew that there was criminal defense and uh, lawsuits, civil suing people. And yeah. so in the criminal defense side of things, there was Johnny Cochran. He was pretty much the uh, the role model for me. And so mm-hmm. I wanted to be a criminal defense attorney. What got me specifically interested in public defense was when I saw a documentary when I was 15 years old called Murder on a Sunday Morning. It's a documentary mm-hmm. that I would recommend for anybody who hasn't seen it. And it chronicles the journey of a... I'm, I'm being nice with journey. It chronicles the the terrible experience of a 15-year-old black child who was falsely accused of murdering a white tourist in Florida and was coerced into signing a confession uh, that Mm -hmm. he did not write. And the prosecution prosecuted him very vigorously despite there being clear holes in the case. And thankfully, he was acquitted. And he was acquitted because of the work that his two public defenders put in on his behalf. They represented him zealously, and of course, because they're public defenders, they weren't paid by him. Uh, In their case, they were paid by the state. Um, How public defense offices arrange themselves is a little different, depending on where we're talking. In certain places, it's through the state. In other places, it's nonprofit. Like, I work for the Legal Aid Society. The Legal Aid Society is a nonprofit organization. Um, Mm -hmm. But the point is that they're, they're not being paid by the people who work for them. So... In order to work hard, you have to have that drive and that dedication where you're going to do the work that's necessary for people because public defense is not a profession that pays particularly well. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you have to be dedicated. And they were dedicated, and I was inspired by that. 
And so I wanted to go into public defense. Nice. And in public defense, do you ever, like, in your own, or just so you said, like, you're struggling for, like, everybody else and trying to help them, do you ever feel that pressure that you had to be there, that you had to be, like, the superhero for your people? Um, I, I, I'm hesitant to use the term superhero, but definitely mm-hmm. the only person in the room fighting for them. Absolutely. Um, yeah. and, and you feel the pressure just because first off you're operating in a system. And I think we should always understand that when you're operating in a system, there are a lot of things that you do not control. In fact, more things than not, you actually do not control. And so there are the frustrations that come with that. Um, there are the obvious frustrations that come sometimes with dealing with clients where, you know, uh, some of the situations that they find themselves in are not the most uh, are not the greatest situations. So there's that frustration um, not to be overlooked. But then there's also the frustration in terms of dealing with judges and mm-hmm. prosecutors who are far more powerful players in the courtroom than defense attorneys, and who, unlike the presumption that everybody's taught about being you know innocent until we are presumed uh, innocent until proven guilty, most people who are caught up in the judicial system especially if they're black and brown people, are presumed guilty until proven innocent. And so there's that frustration in terms of how so-called justice is administered in the courts. Mm-hmm. And then with all that frustration, how you deal with it to keep like sane as a lawyer and not like lose yourself in your work? Well, I think one of the things that lawyers who are dedicated try to do is they try to uh, separate uh, their own stresses from the stresses that come with the work. Um, mm-hmm. And that's necessary to do if for no other reason than the fact is you represent so many clients at one given time. And so you can't take the stresses that you're dealing with with one particular client and carry that when you're dealing with the next client because then you're just not going to be effective at all. Um, mm-hmm. Taking vacations is definitely necessary and sometimes taking breaks entirely is necessary. So I'm in the middle of a break myself where. Um, I started doing community justice lawyering work instead of public defense because I've been doing public defense for four years and, you know, I needed to step back from it for a moment because uh, I found that if I did not step back from it, I would not be effective in terms Mm -hmm. of trying to represent the people that I represent. Um, So it's necessary to take breaks, be it, you know, prolonged breaks in terms of doing something else for a while, shorter breaks in terms of vacations, and then also just finding things to do that you enjoy that take your mm-hmm. mind off of the stresses of going to court and, you know, dealing with, with the people who are involved. Mm-hmm. Nice. So with that, you said that, um, like judges and like prosecutors are more like, the like the more powerful and the players. Correct. And of course, so how do you, so like what kind of things did you do to like overcome that? Well, one of the things that I do or that mm-hmm. I was doing, you know, during the time that I was lawyering, that I was doing criminal law, was that I would represent my clients uh, in unconventional ways. So I'll give mm-hmm. an example of that. Um, when I was practicing criminal law, I would, pr- I would file a lot of different motions. I would come up with a lot of creative motions, a lot of innovative motions, a lot of motions that were never filed before. When I use the term motion, Um, Mm -hmm. I'm referring specifically to a type of written argument, a written legal argument, asking for some type of relief or some type of outcome. So motions can be for a case to be dismissed. Motions can be for certain charges to be dismissed. Motions can be to have evidence thrown out. Motions can be to have the prosecution um, produce records or to have the police department produce records. So motions Mm -hmm. can uh, be various things. And so I would file different types of motions to have the case dismissed or to have different types of things done that were never filed before, that were rarely filed before. And one of the things that I found in doing that was that it served a lot of good purposes. It served the purpose of uh, creating leverage where you can Mm -hmm. get good dispositions, good endings for the cases, or even get the cases thrown out uh, because the argument is good and the prosecution doesn't want to address it. Or you could get better deals than what you might have gotten uh, if you didn't file the motion. And then if nothing else, where the prosecution's not bending, they're not bowing, uh, then it forces them to work. Because my attitude is, well, if you want to convict my client, if you want to prosecute my client, 
then mm-hmm. you're going to have to work for it. I'm not going to roll over and let you get what you want. You know, it doesn't work that way. So that's been one of the ways that I have leveraged the power of prosecutors, where in essence, if you make them have to work, then uh, maybe you can get better results. Um, in terms of how I deal with judges, um, generally I'm polite and I'm respectful, but I, I'm not the most deferential individual. And so, um, uh, you know, when, when, a, when a judge I feel is being disrespectful to my client or disrespectful uh, to what it is that we're trying to do, I will say something about it. Um, mm-hmm. And also through motion practice as well. Um, you know, saying things out in open court is not as easy for anybody as I think in putting things in writing. And so um, I will definitely use motion practice sometimes as a way of me uh, expressing disapproval about what a judge does or what a judge is doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so let's, let's take it back to when you were when you was like law school. What kind of challenges did you face there, and then how did you overcome to become a lawyer? So, in terms of law school, I mean the work was always challenging. Of course, uh, law school is mm-hmm. a very very rigorous academic um, experience, and what perhaps the biggest thing that makes it. Um, so rigorous is the fact that there's a lot of memorizing and there's a lot of information. And so a lot of information and a lot of memorizing, you know, it's, it's a lot of work. And for some people, they excel at it more so than others. So, um, it can be difficult pretty much in that regard. For me personally, I would say that the biggest challenge for me was, uh, learning how to deal in the so-called liberal environment. Mm-hmm. Um, Law school was pretty much the first liberal environment that I found myself in, in terms of an environment that I found myself in, and I was aware of it being a liberal environment, a white liberal environment. Um, you know, I went to Rockland Community College before that. You know, you, you met all kinds yeah. of people there. I went to Baruch College. It's a business school, relatively mm-hmm. conservative. Um, so I went to, when I went to CUNY Law, which uh, markets itself as a public interest law school. Um, this was the first environment that I found myself in where it was a white liberal environment, a mainly white liberal environment. And one of mm-hmm. the things that I came to see is the fact that white liberals in many respects suffer from the same things that white so-called conservatives suffer from, which is that mm-hmm. they have very primitive views of people of color and particularly of black people. Um, to give uh, an easy example of this, there are, or there were in law school, plenty of white liberals who had the so-called savior's complex, if you will, where yeah. they wanted to uh, join the, get involved in the judicial system and become a lawyer. When I say judicial system, not necessarily criminal law, but whatever field that they wanted to get involved in, um, mm-hmm. they had a savior's complex, with, a savior's complex where they wanted to rescue, you know, us poor uh, people from ourselves because of, you know, we're not able to fight for ourselves. And so uh, they want, in essence, uh, dictate how we should, um, in, in essence, dictate our salvation, if you will, or in the yeah. terms of our salvation. Um, and so I wrestled with a lot of that. And I also wrestled with the fact that um, I don't fit the, uh, the prototype of what they consider to be professional. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm a black man, I have dreadlocks, I have a beard, and generally speaking, you know, I dress in African garb and African clothing, and that's not particularly acceptable in the legal field. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what I did find kind of interesting, too, was the fact that, um, you know, there were black people who felt the same way about me as some of the white people in terms of, you know, that's not professional dress and they're not going to associate with me as a result mm-hmm. of that. So that was that was a challenge that I had to deal with. Um, how did I deal with it? I mean, it, it pretty much rolled off my back at that point. Um, being in the environment was definitely a shock for me, and it took me a while to adjust to it and realize that, um, you know, white people who identified as liberals suffer from many of the same issues that white people who didn't identify as liberals suffer from. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, once I came to realize that fact, then, you know, you pick and choose who you deal with and who you don't. And as far as the individuals who didn't like me because of you know how i carried myself well that's on you and i'm I'm not going to dwell on that yeah and then with those experiences did that make it 
that that fuel you more to um want to protect like one of the two not protect like represent as a lawyer to like it fuel your drive. I can I I can't really say that it fueled my drive more mm-hmm. than I would say that it definitely made me fearful. Um, okay. Because you had a lot of people who, um, who were going to be going into the public defense arena with me, who I realized were not going to do right by our clients, and so mm-hmm. I mean that definitely scared me. I would say that, you know, it definitely scared me also because, and this is something that I noticed in you know liberal environments, both at CUNY Law and now at Legal Aid, is that. You know, people will say the right things when the conversation is controlled. But when the conversation is not controlled, you're liable to hear all kinds of things that make you wonder, you know, you profess to be a liberal and this is what you think and this is what you believe. Um, You know, it's kind of crazy. So seeing that, I think, Mm -hmm. definitely made me more concerned. Now, I, I didn't think at that point, in fact, at that point, I didn't need any additional motivation to say, oh, you know, uh, this is going to make me uh, more of a um, a fighter for the people mm-hmm. that we represent. I mean, everything that I had learned up until the point where I got to law school made me determined uh, to fight for for my people. Mm-hmm. Cool. So let's go to like a happier note. So when you do succeed and then you hear back from your like your past clients, how does that make you feel? Um. In the few times that it has happened, it makes me feel good. Um, you know, I mean, most clients don't really reach back to, to say, you know, how are things going? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, for me personally, that's okay because, you know, we're not doing this work to get thanks from our clients. We're doing it because it needs to be done. Um, but in the moment, you know, when you get a good deal for your client or when you get the case dismissed, particularly where a dismissal wasn't necessarily expected, or you go to trial and you fight like hell, your clients mm-hmm. appreciate it. Your clients see it and they appreciate it. And so it makes me feel good. You know, even in the moments where we lose, you know, I'm yeah. not feeling good overall. Overall, it's terrible. But I'm still appreciative of when my client sees that despite the loss that I fought for him to the best that I could, or despite us not getting everything that we wanted, that I fought for him the best that I could. And so I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Cool. And then, what kind of so? As a lawyer, you kind of do you enjoy anything about being a lawyer besides like your drive? Do I enjoy anything about being a lawyer? I mean, one of the things that I enjoyed about criminal law, you know, I told you mm-hmm. that I filed all kinds of creative motions. I actually yeah. liked that at all a lot. Um, I like the creative process of thinking up. Uh, new types of motions, of researching those motions. Legal research is a big part of the job. Um, mm-hmm. I think regardless of what kind of law you really go into. And for criminal law, it's definitely a big part of the job. And so doing the research and being able to craft the argument provided that the cases that you find don't kill your argument. Because for every uh, for every motion that I filed that was creative, I probably had 10 other ideas that after I read the cases, realized there's no point bothering because the case law is so bad in terms of yeah. promoting the idea that I want to promote. Um, but I enjoyed that part of the job. Um, I enjoyed being able to help uh, people who society has uh, called labeled as disadvantaged. So I have enjoyed that very much. Um, I thought I would enjoy trials when I got into the work. I found that I did not enjoy trying cases as much as I thought I did um, because it's a very scary um, endeavor. And it's a scary mm-hmm. endeavor because somebody's life is on the line or somebody's freedom is on the line. And if things go south, uh, you know, it, it, it's going to be yeah. terrible in terms of, yeah. you know, the, the client's um, the client's liberty being gone. And so and one of the things that I stress when I talk to my clients about going to trial, because back when I practiced law, I didn't or when I was practicing criminal defense, I never sought to discourage clients from going to trial outright. Um, I would talk to them about the merits of their case, and I would talk to them about what their defenses are, what the good facts are, what the bad facts are. Um, and there there were definitely times where I might have discouraged a particular client in a particular instance from going to trial. 
but mm-hmm. I don't necessarily shy away from trial or I don't shy away from trial, you know, as a general policy. But I do give my clients fair warning that trial is not a game and that there have been people who have been guilty of what they did, who walked away innocent. They were found not guilty after trial. And there were people who did not commit the crime that they were charged with who were found guilty after trial. You know, Mm -hmm. juries get things wrong all the time and judges get it wrong even more because judges presume our clients to be guilty more so than, you know, uh, juries do. So I definitely make it clear to my clients that this is a risk and that you may very well be found guilty even though you didn't do it. So mm-hmm. if you're willing to take on the risks, then we can go ahead and we can fight this case. But if you're not willing to endure the risks, then I don't know if going to trial is the right thing. Um, but I say I'd like to say that trial, trial can be enjoyable at different points in time for me personally. Um, mm-hmm. But there are very serious um, risks that that one needs to assess before they they go to it you know and there's some people who they fall on extremes for both sides where there's some people who are extremely risk averse and will never try anything and then you have some people who are um they're too trial happy uh if you will uh they're trigger happy on the trials where they try everything including things that should not be tried so trials can be enjoyable um but for me personally i enjoyed motion practice and i enjoy uh, just representing my clients. Mm-hmm. And on that note, when you see like, um, like criminal law and stuff like that on TV and any movies, do any of them get it right, or what things do they get wrong? Um, I'll be honest with you. I don't watch too much television, generally speaking. Okay. And I generally don't watch television because I think television overall is just a gross misrepresentation of reality and does not comport with it. That said, the little bit that I did watch, um, or the little bit that I have seen, like the rest of television, is a gross distortion of actual reality um, and just does not comport with how things actually work. Um, You know, people talk about trials. Trials take a long time to happen. At least they do in New York and they do in many other jurisdictions. Um, Trials are not speedy. They don't happen overnight. And so the idea with People, you know, uh, people who say that, oh, well, a person wouldn't plead guilty to something they didn't do. If you didn't do it, then hold fight, hold tight and you'll get your day in court. Your day in court can be years down the line, a year, two years, three years down the line. And people get tired of that. People get tired of it in and of itself. And then if you throw in the fact that people have jobs and can't keep coming to court, people have immigration consequences having hanging over their heads sometimes. And so they can't risk it. People have uh, employment that gets suspended because they have an open case, or of course, the most common um, incentive for people to plead guilty, bail gets set on your case or you're remanded and you want to get out. So mm-hmm. people can plead guilty for all kinds of reasons that have nothing to do with whether or not they actually committed the offense that they're charged with. And part of the reason they do that is because speedy trial is not so speedy. It's, it's an illusion. It often does not happen. Um, and then talking about pleas, a lot of people think that uh, individuals will never confess to a crime that they did not commit. Nothing could be further from the truth. First off, again, when we talk about pleas, pleas are in essence admissions. And people plead guilty, like I said, for all kinds of reasons that have nothing to do with whether or not they committed the offense. And then, of course, a person can be coerced into um, confessing to just about anything if the conditions are right. And it doesn't even necessarily have to be physical abuse by the police officer or the law enforcement officer. Um, You know, proper psychological coercion or psychological stimuli can help a person to plead guilty to something that they, in fact, did not uh, plead guilty to. Um, A lot of people seem to think that injustice does not happen on a regular basis in the courts. That clearly isn't true. And I see that every day. Um, People hold police officers in very, very high regard. And police officers, are some of the worst actors in the judicial system. And this is not hidden. This is not like, um, you know, something that you have to search hard in order to find. And this is documented. Uh, to give a perfect example of this, the New York Times came out with a series of articles about two years ago about testaline. Um, testaline is a, a phrase that was concocted in police circles about police officers lying under oath. They're giving testimony that they know to be false. False. 
And this has been a decades-old problem that has been written about in law journals. Like I said, the New York Times did a series of articles about it. We know that police officers lie in court. Like It's not a question. It's not a, a possibility. We know that police officers lie in court, and they lie in court routinely. And yet nothing is done about it. And yet people are not going to know that when you watch Law & Order and whatever other shows that they have out there. Police officers are held in high regard. They do no wrong. They commit no crimes. They violate nobody's rights um, mm-hmm. on television. But in actuality, that's just not true. Police officers do all kinds of things that they should not be doing, from illegal searches and seizures to planting evidence to assaulting people um, to falsifying uh, paperwork to stealing property. I mean, we call it civil forfeiture. We don't call it stealing, but that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and not only do police do these things, but they are um, very actively protected. They're protected by prosecutors. They're protected by judges. They're protected by uh, the media. They're protected by the city. They're protected by the state. So this this is the reality that isn't talked about. Um, speaking of law enforcement, prosecutors. There's this idea that prosecutors are these venerated individuals that are about seeking justice and that are not about seeking convictions. And Mm -hmm. I can tell you stories for days of prosecutors who were faced, who had cases where the evidence was either weak or non-existent, who had cases where there was compelling evidence that the person didn't do what they were accused of doing, and the prosecutors still sought convictions. They still sought pleas, and in certain cases, they still tried the cases. Mm-hmm. Um, with the hopes that they would get a conviction because at the end of the day, if they get a conviction, great. And if they don't get a conviction, it's not skin off of their teeth. Nobody's going to jail as a result of them losing a case. They're not getting fired as a result of losing a case. And so, um, you know, it doesn't really matter to them. Prosecutors generally are more concerned with getting convictions than they are with actually doing justice. They are more concerned with getting convictions than making sure that the person who did the crime is held accountable and and that people who didn't do the crime are not held accountable. And, you know, this goes back into the whole idea of them presuming people guilty until proven innocent. Now, what's unfortunate, again, speaking with regards to prosecutors, is that the prosecutor's office is erected to promote the pursuit of convictions and not the pursuit of justice. It is not designed to, to go after, you know, justice. And so, you know, I've had prosecutors, line prosecutors who get a case and they want to dismiss it, but they can't because their supervisors won't let them, or they want to make a particular offer, but they can't because their supervisors won't let them. And so uh, with these types of, of barriers in check and with the type of bureaucracy that the prosecution has in check, even prosecutors that want to do the right thing in many respects are hamstrung from doing the right things and they have to fight to do the right things. And now when we think about in the prosecutor's office, what type of prosecutors you think get promoted to become supervisors and bureau chiefs and things like that? What type of police officers get promoted to become uh, sergeants and captains and things like that? It's not the ones who are, are trying to do what's right. It's the ones who are perpetuating the injustices. And so, you know, uh, television does a very, very great disservice to what really goes on in the judicial system. And then, of course, I think it's fair to say that uh, there is no um, legitimate, if any, examination of the role that racial bias plays in the judicial system or in policing or in the prosecutor's office in any of the shows that exist. Um, in the limited um, views that I've seen or that, I, that I've experienced, I haven't seen it. Um, mm-hmm. If you have, feel free to let me know, but I haven't seen it. Cool. And with all that, there's like so many problems in the system. Is there any way of saving the system or really destroy everything? Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I think before we talk about destroying the system or fixing the system, we have to get to the root of the problem. And the root of the problem is that there are systems of oppression at play in the United States of America at large. You cannot fix the judicial system without fixing the remainder of the country. You cannot get rid of the racial biases in the system if we do not address the racial biases that exist in the country at large. And this is what I think has been one of the biggest problems in terms of so-called reform efforts and efforts to bring fairness to the system in a vacuum. The system doesn't operate in a vacuum. No system in this country operates in a vacuum. No system anywhere in the world operates in a vacuum. It has to be examined within the appropriate context. And that doesn't tend to happen when we talk about 
uh, fixes in the judicial system. Now, that said, if you're talking about quick fixes, is there a way to do quick fixes? Um, I think one of the things that needs to be done is that discretion needs to be greatly limited, not necessarily eradicated. I don't think uh, it should be eradicated, but it should be limited. And whatever discretion that does exist, there needs to be proper checks and balances for that discretion, because there really isn't a proper check uh, and balance for discretion. And the fact is, when we examine the history of discretion in this country and the use of discretion in this country, it has always been exercised in a racially biased manner. What do I mean? Police officers have discretion to stop who they're going to stop and to uh, enforce the laws in in uh, in given areas or in given communities and not enforce them in given communities. And so mm-hmm. as a result, they're going to stop and frisk people in Harlem, but not necessarily on the east side, in the upper east side. Um, they're going to pick and choose where they're stopping people, where they're frisking people, and uh, how they're um, charging crimes as well. That's another thing, too. And this comes to prosecutorial discretion, where the prosecutors can decide who they're going to charge, what they're going to charge the person, if they're going to institute a prosecution or not, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And then judges have a lot of discretion as well. One clear example is in the setting of bail. A judge can decide whether or not to release a person on their own recognizance or whether bail is necessary to ensure the return to court. And of course, uh, bail gets set disproportionately on Black people and on Hispanic people, uh, more so than whites and more so than other groups. And so discretion, the exercise of discretion, has always been in a racially biased manner and in a socially unjust manner. And so taking steps to limit that discretion where it can be limited uh, can be a short-term fix. Not a long-term solution, but a short-term fix. Mm-hmm. I thought that the bail laws um, that were enacted last year, April 2019, um, was a good fix in terms of the problem because it greatly limited how much bail judges could set because prior to the new laws getting enacted, judges would pretty much routinely set bail uh, on the same types of people, again, poor black and brown people. And there was, um, in many respects, no need for it. A lot of people were being detained on misdemeanors. A lot of people were being detained on nonviolent crimes. A lot of people were being detained on low amounts of bail, but because they couldn't afford it, then they were being detained. They were being locked up and held pretrial, um, even though there wasn't much of an indication that the person would not return to court, which is the purpose of bail as articulated in New York State. And Mm -hmm. so they passed these laws that went into effect in January 2020, but because the law enforcement lobby was arrayed against it and the prosecutors were arrayed against it and the New York Senate has no backbone and Governor Cuomo, not even going to start on him, uh, the reforms pretty much were, were... all but squashed before they had a real chance to work. Now, um, there are still some reforms in place or some protections in place, uh, but judicial discretion was limited to an extent that I thought was great with the bail reform that it has been grossly expanded uh, with the rollbacks that were enacted earlier this month. And so, you know, I mean, discretion, like I said, it's, it's a short fix. But yeah. if we're talking about a long-term solution, there needs to be more, uh, more of an examination into the context that the judicial system exists in. Mm-hmm. And well, like if we if we find like a way to restructure like the United States and stuff like that, how do we like prevent the same problem from happening again? If there's a way, I mean, if we're being entirely theoretical, um, yeah. And I guess there's some practicality, but if we're being theoretical, I mean, first off, uh, everybody who was involved in the old system, um, or I should say not everybody who was involved in the old system, should be allowed to be players in the new system, mm-hmm. um, particularly those who are most responsible for perpetuating some of the injustices. And, you know, I think in that regard, the gathering of statistics and data can be quite useful in terms of determining who is um, more set on trying to do what's right in the judicial system and who is um, trying to perpetuate and continue the disparities that have always existed 
um, in in history. Um, so I think that that would be a necessary uh, step in terms mm -hmm. of not everybody who was involved needs to necessarily be involved again. Um, I also think that if we're talking about making America a more just society, um, that and I, I recognize that I am an attorney and, and the implications of what I'm about to say, but we should not be living in a society where you need a lawyer in order to understand what the law is and in order to work out a defense and in order to just be able to navigate through the judicial system. I mean, in any society, if, we're, if this is supposed to be a system that is about doing justice, justice should not be complicated and justice should not be technical. You should not have to hire a professional, an expert, in order to understand what the law is and how the law works. The law is supposed to be something that benefits society because it's something that binds society, that requires the members of society to um, adhere to a certain level of conduct. And so it's important that people understand um, what that conduct is and understand what the law requires and what it doesn't require. So the law should be written in a manner that allows for lay persons to understand. The law should be written in a manner that allows people to be able to uh, follow the law and use the law in their own defense. And the judicial process should not be an adversarial process. Uh, if we're talking about doing justice, then it should be a truth-seeking process. It should be a process that's about fact-finding. Now, mm -hmm. how that process gets determined, I mean, that can be you know, um, debated or discussed at a later point. But when you have an adversarial process in place, both sides are not concerned about truth. Both sides are going to be concerned about winning. Mm -hmm. If you're the defense attorney, you're naturally going to be concerned with getting your client off. And if you're the prosecution, you're going to be concerned with, you know, getting the conviction. And so in my personal view, an adversarial system is not a system for bringing about justice, because if it's a competition, then, you know, people are trying to win. And, and that's not justice should not be reduced to a competition, in my mm -hmm. view. So uh, there, there should be a, a, a great change in terms of how the judicial process works. Now, in terms of dealing with people's individual biases, I mean, I mean, that's obviously got to be dealt with and to the extent that we can deal with it. Um, you know, that would be most ideal. Oh, so with that in mind, also, do you think it takes a certain type of person to become a lawyer with all like the hard work and all the things that, depending on, on the position of the prosecution or defense or even judge, do you think that type of person to, be, to um, get through that? I'm sorry, ask the question again? My fault. It sounds like, um, pretty much, do you think it's a, 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 it takes a specific type of person to become a lawyer with all like the hard okay. things? Yeah. Does it take a specific type of person to become a conscientious lawyer or to become a good lawyer? Uh, let's go with both. Okay. Because um, the two are not the same. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you can be a good lawyer and be a devil. Um, and then, of course, or and, and you know, and not conscientious at all. You could be a very conscientious attorney, but you're not a very good attorney. So in terms of being a good attorney, I would say that the things that a person needs to become a good attorney, um, you should be able to, in, in a good attorney in the climate that we live in, mm -hmm. legal research and legal writing, in my view, are two of the most underrated yet most important skills that a good lawyer should have. You should be able to write well. You should be able to write persuasively, as persuasively as one can argue. And mm -hmm. you should be able to do legal research in terms of finding cases. Because in the, in the United States of America, pretty much the practice of law is heavily based upon uh, precedent. What was done in a prior case? What was done in past cases? And mm -hmm. so uh, being able to find those cases that help you make your argument uh, will help you become a good lawyer. Because since it's so based on what happens in prior cases, then we want to find cases that support our positions. And when we are arguing against somebody who's bringing their own cases, we want to be able to distinguish 
or show how those cases are different or how those cases shouldn't apply to this particular situation. And so Mm -hmm. understanding the value of cases, understanding the importance of knowing when a case applies to your situation or when a case can apply to your situation, uh, that's an important skill to have as well. And of course, it's not just cases, there's statutes and other things, but case law is really a big part of of, uh, our practice. So those two things are definitely needed. Obviously, well, let me not say obviously, but mm-hmm. what should be obvious is a good sense of logic. Knowing just intuitively what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. And you'd be surprised that I'm saying it should be obvious because I have encountered plenty of lawyers um, in the little time that I practiced who have no idea of what is logical and what is illogical. They have said all kinds of things. They will say all kinds of things that make absolutely no sense. They will make arguments where if you read the cases they're citing, the cases they're citing are not saying what they say that the cases say, um, or they're saying the complete opposite. Um, so, And so I don't even know if that's in the realm of logic. I mean, lot, there's logic, but then there's also just diligence, like making yeah. sure that you're doing a good job, making sure that you are paying attention to detail and you're not making representations that are false. And then aside from that, I would say, I mean, it's it's obviously good to be honest. Um, you know, don't say things that are false. Mm-hmm. There, there are ethical rules that, you know, you can get punished if you do make misrepresentations on the record. Uh, yet at the same time, I would say in terms of being a good lawyer, the best lawyers think outside the box. You can't always go by rote in terms of the things that you do. You can't always do the same things over and over again. Uh, you have to be... Um, you have to be, uh, um, what's the word? You have to be creative, I guess. I can't think yeah. of the better word, but you have to be creative in terms of what you do in a given situation. Um, I'll give you a perfect example. So like in the system that we work in, one of the mm-hmm. things that I do is I will forum shop um, to the best extent that I can because I don't necessarily control court schedules or things like that. But one of the things that I definitely used to do um, was I would forum shop. And what I mean by that is you try and find you find you try to put yourself in positions where you're going to get the best outcome for your client in terms of which judge you deal with. So, mm-hmm. for example, if I'm thinking of filing a particular motion, I'm going to look at the court schedule to see which judge is going to be in the courtroom the day that I file the motion. And if it's a judge who I think is going to be uh, sympathetic to my argument or receptive of my argument, then I'm going to file the motion. If I think it's a judge who's going to be unsympathetic to my argument or who's going to reject my argument outright. If I see that this is a judge that I've knocked heads in the past and that I'm not going to get along with him, then I'm not going to file the motion. I'm going to wait and I'm going to hold on to the extent that I can, to the extent that the rules allow. So, you know, that's one example of, of forum shopping. Um, I know another example of forum shopping that I definitely did. Um, I had a case where a client of mine was charged with a felony and we were in arraignments. Arraignments is the first court date when you first see the judge for the first time. Mm-hmm. and the judge that we were in front of was a judge that um, if we went in front of him, I knew he was going to set bail on my client. And so I found out that this was during the morning shift, that during the evening shift, it was going to be a different judge. And of course, this different judge happened to be a judge who I thought was uh, a lot more um, understanding and a lot more sympathetic uh, to uh, people who were charged with crimes as opposed to being pro-prosecution. And so. There was an issue, there was a clerical issue where they couldn't find the file. And whereas I normally would have pressed it um, under those circumstances, because, you know, I'm working the morning shift. I don't want to work the evening shift. I don't want to stay behind, um, Mm -hmm. you know, past my shift, past five o'clock. In this particular case, I didn't press it because as far as I'm concerned, if it wound up going to the evening shift, it would go before the better judge and I would have a better chance of getting my client out, which is in fact what happened. It wound up going before the evening judge. And I was able to get my client out. And so, you know, things like that, where Mm -hmm. you can do things by rote and in that given situation say, well, um, we're supposed to be arraigned at this particular time. And so where's the file? Where's the file? Where's the file? And you make a big stink out of it. And now you've just disadvantaged your client uh, because you did things by rote. And then, of course, there are people who, you know, they don't necessarily care at all. Like, I don't want to stay here past a certain time frame. And so I would much rather this client go to jail or I'd, yeah, but I mean, I, I don't want to say it that way, but for lack of a better yeah. word, you know, they'll let the client go to jail 
if the client potentially not going to jail means that I have to stay late. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I, I would say that all of those things are, are things that a good lawyer needs in terms of thinking outside the box, being good with the legal research and the legal writing. Um, and I would say public speaking too. I mean, it, it doesn't help hurt to be a public speaker. It doesn't help to be so nervous that you can't make arguments in front of, in front of a judge or in front of a jury. So, you know, it's good to have public speaking skills. Um, and then understanding logic, being diligent and being able to, um, being able to think outside the box. Now, in terms of being a conscientious attorney, um, I, I don't think being a conscientious attorney is something that can be taught. If you're a conscientious person and you mm-hmm. become a lawyer, then you will be a conscientious attorney. And if you're a slime, <laughs> then, you know, being a lawyer, you, you, you're not going to transform into a conscientious lawyer if you are not a conscientious person. And so I think in terms of being a conscientious person, I mean, there's steps in, in terms of what a person can do to try and be more conscientious. But how conscientious a person is, I think, is going to depend on their personality. Personality. Mm-hmm. Nice. Very informative. And with that, um, do you have any other advice for like, people who want to become lawyers or anything for them to think about? Um, I will say this. Because people will come to me and ask me about whether or not they should go to law school um, because they might be interested in being a lawyer. And what I said to them and what I will say to anybody who might listen to this is, in this day and age, you should become, you should go to law school if you are positive, 100% positive that you want to become an attorney or you want to do something where having a law degree is required. Mm-hmm. If you are not sure about whether you want to become an attorney, you should not be going to law school. You should not be going to law school based on equivocations of, oh, law looks good. Maybe 30 years ago, 40 years ago, it was a great idea to get a law degree regardless of whether you were going to go into the field. That's not the case anymore. And the Mm -hmm. fact is that uh, law school is too expensive. The process is too burdensome. And the light at the end of the tunnel, meaning jobs at the end, are is too dim. The light at the end of the tunnel is too dim for anybody to go to law school for any other reason than that they know they want to be an attorney. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just not the investment that it once was. And I mean, take now, like public defense, when I was in law school, was a very competitive profession. And now it's become even more competitive of a profession. And it's become more competitive because arrests are down. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, uh, New York City and probably New York State seems to think that uh, it is a good benchmark uh, in terms of whether or not to hire public defenders to base it off of how many arrests there are. And so it's strictly numerical and it has nothing to do with quality. If there are a lot of arrests and hire more public defenders, if there are not so many arrests and we don't need so many public defenders, when it's not so much, it should not be based on quantity. It should be based on quality. If you want people to have a quality defense, which they're supposed to have the constitutional right to be able to prepare, then, you know, that requires having lawyers who are not overburdened with many cases. Mm -hmm. Um, But in any event, you know, that aside, it's hard to get a job as a public defender, period. And it's extremely hard to get a job as a public defender in New York City. And so, I mean, to give an example or, or to give the numbers, I guess, when I became a public defender in legal aid, this was in 2015, uh, there were 360 people who were interviewed for the first round. And there were 100 people who were interviewed for the final round. And there were ultimately 28 people in my class. Now, from 360 people getting interviewed for a first round, meaning that more than 360 people applied, Mm -hmm. and my class ultimately had only 28. And of that 28, only 17 came straight out of law school. Okay, there were four people who were lateral transfers. There was one person who came from, uh, or well, there were four people who were lateral transfers, and then the other um, seven were already admitted attorneys who were practicing elsewhere, who then Mm -hmm. came to uh, the legal aid society. And so there were only 17 graduates, um, from law school 
out of everybody who applied who got into legal aid. And so mm-hmm. there just aren't that many job openings. And then in some of the other public defenders, if, if it's bad for legal aid, it's going to be worse for the other defenders. So like Bronx defenders, I believe, are not hiring anybody this year, which hasn't been the case. They've generally hired attorneys, not necessarily a whole lot of attorneys, but they hired attorneys. Nobody's being hired by the Bronx defenders this year. Uh, Brooklyn defenders generally does not hire unless somebody retires or dies um, or mm-hmm. leaves. Um, same for New York County and some of the other defenders. So getting a job as a public defender is extremely difficult. And so, and, and that's just public defense. Um, I'm sure it's true across the board to some extent everywhere else. And mm-hmm. so if you, if you're thinking about going to law school, the question you should ask yourself is, uh, is, are, are you going to go into a profession where a law degree is required? Like, are you sure of this? And if your answer is anything other than yes, then you should not be going to law school. Um, mm-hmm. Now, if you are going to law school, then, you know, best of luck. Hope you do well. Um, but yeah, I would say that. Ooh, that sounds like a good place to stop on uh, some advice. So I'd like to thank you for coming to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Do you have any last minute questions for me? Anything like that? Or no? Uh, nope. I mean, I, I suppose like when you're done editing this, you'll send this, you'll send me a link so I can hear. Yeah. You. Okay. Definitely. All right, and that's then, it. Cool. And then last thing, what would you what would you name your origin story? What would I name my origin story? That's a good question. Um hmm. I would name it a life in the struggle. Life in the struggle. Nice. That brings another episode of the Let's Get Podcast to a close. I'd like to thank Zamir for coming on the podcast. For next week, I have Nova Lorraine coming in to speak about creating her own digital magazine. I hope you tune in next day, and I hope to see you there.